We know on a cellular level that this is true, that mothers are leaders. With our whole being, we know that we lived inside these people. We wouldn't be on planet Earth without mom. There is a depth that is almost beyond words when it comes to the mother-child relationship. I was really excited about talking to you about the mother as leader because, A, it's an underrepresented conversation. The impact a mother can make on a child's life, the planning skills, the organization, the intuition that she has to listen to or that she has to ignore in order to fit into society, which is a very real dilemma. She's the person hiring care, whether she's working outside or inside the home, that child is always on her mind, and that child is going to be the leader of tomorrow. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. The last episode was a solo episode where I talked about how to assess the leaders and the company you're working for. Today, we're back in the interview world. My guest is here because she made a statement to me that I completely agree with. She said that moms are the most underrated leaders and that as a society, we tend to focus more on working moms, but all moms are really important leaders. You know the part of my commitment to you is to be transparent and always be the real me. So I want to share something very personal. A few months ago, I lost my mother. She was a stay-at-home mom and she was a very happy and fulfilled woman in that role. But she also had a huge influence on me. And if I look at the traits that have helped me in my career and in my life, the most important ones actually come from her. This episode is coming out on the week of her birthday. And this is the first birthday that she's not with us. So it is very special for me today to have an episode that talks about mothers and their leadership. I'm dedicating this episode to her, Carla Cattani Uccelli. I also want to thank and acknowledge my guest, Daniela Rabani. She brought to the podcast a tremendous energy and she created a very special space for me. We'll hear at a point in the conversation that we're talking about what I learned from my mom. Now, during the recording, I was overwhelmed by the emotion and I had a solid five minutes when I couldn't talk and cried. Daniela wanted me to leave it in because she felt that it was a powerful moment. I just sweated it out, not because I am embarrassed about crying in the middle of the interview, but just to respect your time and keep the flow going. So I am still making the disclosure now. With that, let me introduce Daniela. She's the host of the Mom Curious podcast, an actress and a voiceover actress. In our discussion, we talked about how she found her way in identity in acting, the process of turning a creative endeavor into a profession, the value and power of persistence, and what she has learned about herself and leadership through her podcast. Before we get into the episode, let me say one final thing. One of the principles that got my editorial approach is that there are more ways to think about leadership than the traditional ways we're taught, and that sometimes there are powerful lessons and insights that come from unexpected places. I think this episode proves my point. Enjoy. Daniela, welcome to the show. Let's start by giving an introduction to my listeners. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing now, and the journey that got you here. First and foremost, hi, Dino. Thank you so much for having me on. I met you yesterday. And the fact that you have the, the open-heartedness and sense of humor 
to sit down with me for the next hour <laughs> as I talk about leadership in motherhood. It's just so special to me. So thank you. My name is Daniela Rabani, friends. I'm usually in the host position. I have a, a podcast named Mom Curious. I'm a classical actress by training. I've been in movies like Ocean's Aid and TV shows like Fox's um, God Friended Me. I've done voiceovers for over 15 years for big brands and animation. And I tell stories for a living. That's what I do. And recently, when I became a mother, I never stopped acting and singing, doing voiceovers and commercials. But the story of motherhood became very exciting to me. The story of, of parenting the children of today in a way that's different than we were parented and the way our parents were parented became a real curiosity of mine. And then as I started writing more about that on my socials and connecting with other women, either who want to be mothers or, or do not, I just, I realized that the the world doesn't quite support the female experience <laughs> the way it ought to. So I took that information and my training as an artist and a connector, and I have my studio set up, you know, here I am. And now I get to speak to mothers and hand them the mic and let them know that we care and that we're rooting for them and that the work of a mother is inherently challenging and deeply, deeply gratifying. Yeah, so I tell those stories on, on a lot of different angles, mine own as well. That's fabulous. And, and we are definitely, that's going to be a big part of our podcast and our conversation because, you know, you said, oh, you were talking to me yesterday and we were, we were exchanging notes about our podcast. And I'm like, oh, what you're doing is really interesting. And, and you talked about the fact that, you know, no matter what matters are, what, what they do other than mothering, the mother position is a leadership position. And that's really something that I want to explore in a little bit, because the other thing that is really interesting about you is you're an actress. You've been a working actress for a number of time. It is really difficult to sustain a career in the arts, a creative career. And also in our world, I think people who are not familiar with the world of the arts, when they think of an actor, they only think about the, the top really tiny percentage of actors, like the people that we see in the big movie, the superstars that are, in, you know, that are on Instagram, that are on like in the tabloids. But there is a whole <laughs> uh, middle class of creative yeah. people and actors mm -hmm. who have a life that in a lot of ways is a lot more similar to ours. So... I would love you to take us behind the scenes. What is it like to be a working actor like you are that is covering, as you mentioned, like a lot of bases? First of all, maybe let's start like, how did you come to acting? You know, maybe a little bit like full background story. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I auditioned for Oliver, the musical. The director, Yishai Gross, was also a producer on Broadway and he had some Sundance uh, films, but you know, he as an artist also needed to pay his bills. So he did middle school and high school productions too. This is the journeyman artist, you know, as I'm a journeyman actor, these are the regular people who just make a living out of their creativity. And Yishai Gross was my mentor for 
a number of years all throughout for seven years, three years of middle school, four years of high school. I was in plays directed by him, produced by him. And I found that my big voice, enormous heart (laughs) needed that outlet desperately. And I think a lot of people in the creative field often find themselves, you know, in the in the plays as children, right? Um, Sometimes they end up being different sort of like directors or producers or stage managers. You know, I ended up staying as the performer because there was something so deeply nourishing to me about the experience of like my all of my big feelings that were not really welcome in my everyday experience, certainly not in class, not in school, and not at home, they were invited and celebrated on stage. Screaming was a good thing, you know? Like, making you laugh was the goal. You know, I would try to do that in class, and I would get in trouble, right? Or I would be mean and want to make you cry, and I would be called a bully. I mean, rightfully so, right? So, but I could I could use this creative force for good. And it felt really good. And when I applied to colleges, I only applied to one, and it was NYU Tisch. And, you know, my father, who's, you know, a, a very religious man, a very pious Jew, prays three times a day, wants his daughter to be a teacher, was like totally against it. Of course, now he's like my biggest man. But at the time, he was totally against it. My mother took out thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans. She was like, this is this little girl's calling. Like, there's just no way around it. And so... By the time I graduated NYU Tisch, it took me about five years to pay off those loans because I got lucky in that I did teach. I did teach at the Stella Adler Studio of Acting. But because I live in New York, Madison Avenue, where the advertisers are, generally speaking, were in New York centric. And the commercial acting landscape was here. The money to make out of advertising dollars, like the money was here in New York for theater artists. So I knew that I have this raspy voice. I have this this tenacious, I'm going to make it happen quality. I broke through the voiceover industry and I was the voice of the Barnes & Noble Nook. It was essentially like the Kindle. It, It ended up folding, but they had these beautiful commercials. I did them and I was the voice of Colgate Optic White for five years. And at the time, the unions were working so well for us that we would walk into a booth, get a bottle of water, maybe a snack, hang out with the ad execs. They'd give me maybe a paragraph, maybe a line. I'd walk out $50,000 later, like one session. That's not really the case anymore, but I got very lucky. So I paid off my student loans that way. And I just wouldn't take no for an answer. I mean, the level of marketing that I did, the emails that I sent, the auditions, I mean, still, my audition rate is, let's say I, I book one thing out of 10, one thing out of 100 even, can make my whole year. Not only financially, but in terms of projects and relationships. Of course, I always want to m- make more, do more, etc. But I think that uh, just knowing that like you don't have to book all of them, you just have to keep doing work, you just have to be sort of pig-headed. And knowing 
that I was made for this, that this was, this is my path that, you know, I was saying that I was raised in a religious environment that like the creator created me to do this. That gives me like the strength to just, all right, I got rejected that time. All right. I got rejected again and again and again and again. And here I am. What's interesting to me is I hear you describe your journey. It feels like you were pretty clear fairly on in your age development, if you will, about your identity, who you were. You say, no, I have this raspy voice. I know that I'm tenacious. Tell me a little bit about the the process of like starting to come into your own and being intentional about who you are, identifying, you know, what were the things that you thought were going to work for you and kind of like articulating that to the world, if you will. I think as a child, I was sort of celebrated for being able to stand on stage alone with people and just magnetize their attention and tell them a story. I could really hold the crowd, whether I was singing or I was dancing or I was acting. I knew that that was probably the only time where I was allowed to be sort of attention seeking. And I needed a lot of attention. You know, I listened to your ADD episode, which was brilliant. And I relate so deeply. I actually was diagnosed very early on in my life, not that it helped me in any way, but because we didn't know what what to do with that diagnosis at the time. But a child with ADD has a lot of energy and also needs to be attuned to. And I could get the attunement of hundreds of people for a full hour. And I knew that about myself, that I genuinely needed that, that I needed that attunement, that I needed to be seen, that I needed to be heard. And that, you know, like the world's not set up for me chatting all the time. (laughs) Like it's not set up to hear what I have to say all the time. But Do you remember yesterday in the middle of your conversation when you were like, I have a podcast on leadership and I said, cool, I want to be on it. That was me always. Cool. I want to be on it. I know that mothers are undervalued in their leadership position. They are literally shaping physically and otherwise the future that we're going to live in. And I have something to say about it. Do you know? Let's go. I always had that quality. There's a couple of other things that I want to go back that you said that I think are really interesting because you kind of drop them casually, but they're not in real life really casual. So the first one is there's a transition from, I love being at the center of attention. I'm kind of good at this. This is what I want to study, but then to translating that, okay, now this is going to be my profession. This is how I'm going to get people to give me money to do that. And that's a process that It's very difficult in any career, and it's doubly difficult in the arts. So I'm interested in how did you start thinking about, okay, there's the development of the craft, there's the understanding that I am good at this, but now how do I think about, you know, presenting myself professionally, getting in front of people, et cetera? I think... It was a matter of need. I didn't come from a lot of money. I had an enormous amount of debt. I had a lot to prove. And I came from this conservative environment where women, girls, really ought not to be in showbiz. (laughs) 
It's not the most, you know, it's just, it was risky for me. And I had a lot to prove and not a lot of financial backing from the outset. I just needed money. So I tried to do, like I did demos, like I would I would be the girl in Whole Foods being like, have you tried this skincare product? You know, I'd get $100 a day for that. Or I would hostess. I was a very bad waitress. Very bad. I was an okay babysitter, but only okay, which is really weird because I have two children of my own. And I'm like, oh my God, these people are saints. But I could teach. I could teach. So I taught at the Stella Adler studio. I taught movement for actors. I remember I realized that my ADD brain, I couldn't do anything that I wasn't deeply inspired by. And when I did admit that to myself, I could write up curriculum for these young actors and be totally present with them and wholehearted because I cared. I really cared. And when I didn't care anymore, I left because I just couldn't do it. But for whatever reason, I knew my business brain, my survival brain was like, I need to act. I know that. This is my lifeblood. This is what I believe I was brought to this earth to do. How am I going to do that? I need money. <laughs> I'm a terrible waitress. I, you know, I, I'm not really interested in teaching anymore. It's going to be voiceovers. That's, I knew that it was lucrative. I knew it was challenging, but I also have always had a really interesting sound. And I knew that about myself. I think like being honest about my gifts was a good thing. You know, like I knew that that was a special sound. And I went to coach after coach after coach. They would do these pay-to-plays um, where I would meet agents and I would say, I'm really good at this. I can really do this. And then they reject me and I would say it again. And I think it was the, the need. I needed money. I needed to make money. And I also needed time to work on my craft. And this was the smartest way to make money and to have enough time to produce a web series, to uh, produce and direct and act in a short film that's now on Amazon Prime so that I would have footage to show to agents, to show to casting directors, to show to producers, to show the world that I could do this thing. And it worked out for me as a voiceover artist, which poo poo poo, as they say. This is really interesting to me because what you articulated here is something that people take a lot of time to figure out in their career, which is understanding quickly their points of strength and investing early in them because people work in organization and like, you know, yeah, you're creative, but you're a really terrible project manager. Like, you know, you're really good at execution, but you're not strategic and they fall into these ruts where they're trying to overinvest in making up for their shortcomings. Instead than trying to say, okay, I'm going to get my shirts coming to a base and I'm going to be really good at one thing. As you were thinking about this, were you thinking about airs where like, well, you know, that's maybe not a strength of mine and, and kind of like being strategic about just doing the voice or how do you thought of, think about that? I keep thinking about that podcast you, you did about ADHD because it was, really did resonate so much. I have like a real sense of myself in my body. It's not an idea in my head. It is a whole body feeling, right? Like I knew that talking to you was important. I got everyone out the door. No problem. Now, if if there was a part of me that 
ever doubted that this was the the right thing to do. I would definitely self-sabotage. Oh, I'm late. Oh, I oof. No. When I step into a booth as a voiceover artist, I know for sure I can deliver. I just know it. I have a whole body feeling if I do decide to teach again. And I haven't for a long time because I didn't feel in my guts that it was the right thing for me. When I feel that energized, present, it doesn't matter how much I slept, it doesn't matter how much water I drank, it is a real download, like, this is it. It's full body. It has nothing to do with my analytical brain. Because I wouldn't even consider myself very confident. I just know, head to toe, I can do this. I can sing this song. I can play that role. I can't play that role. So I think the good news about my profession is that I never had to grow up, really. I could stay childlike in knowing what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, what I like, what I don't like, and just sort of following that thread. This is the last question about the acting, because there's one more thing that you said, almost dropping casually in passing, which is actually, I think, one of the most difficult challenges that all humans face. So to get at the point where you were auditioning, it means that you had passed a long stretch being the best. You were the best in middle school. You were because that allowed you to get into college and then you were performing in college at a certain level. And you said, oh, you know, I didn't get that part. I didn't get that part. I didn't get that part. That transition from being really good at something to then entering into the real world where you're starting to face all the rejections, it's a really difficult transition. And I think it's something that everybody who is in a career path at the early stages at some point comes to deal with. And you are so comfortable right now when you talk about rejection, which is, by the way, a very healthy attitude because that's what allows you to, to get the one audition that really you really nailed. But like, what was the process for you to navigate through the early rejections and then get into the point where you're at, where you're, you know, okay, it's just one more rejection. When I got to NYU... I was not the best by any stretch of the imagination. And if anyone listening has been through actor training, it is boot camp. And, you know, I think things have changed in recent years, but uh, acting teachers are notoriously brutal, mean, just mean. So I had a taste of like, that's not good enough, Daniela. You can't phone that in. I had reviews where I would sit down and uh, one of my acting teachers are like, why are you here? Really? And I think that was good for me on some level. I think like I really was, I definitely was the best in my middle school, the best in my high school. I mean, I was the best. I, I can only say that now because, you know, no one else is doing this professionally. And except for one girl, Siggy Grodwall. She's, she's a really beautiful artist and actor. And so it was easy for me to say, yeah, I was the best. But when I got to NYU, I very much wasn't. And I got comfortable understanding that about myself. I wasn't the best. I wasn't the prettiest. I wasn't the skinniest. I wasn't, I just, I wasn't even the most hardworking. I wasn't the smartest. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I think I was just the most, I even wasn't even the most. I was deeply determined to make this my life inspired whole body it wasn't a logical choice it just was for me 
And I did get comfortable and maybe a little too comfortable being like, oh, you know, I'm not that great at this and I'm not that great at that. It's a very healthy mindset. And then the idea of thinking like, if you have the determination, you will make it through. Because I do think that we live overall in a society where we are conditioned. You're either the best or it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. And I was taught that at a very young age, either comes naturally to you. Why would you even go to acting school? Like that's ridiculous. And then, you know, in acting school, they didn't teach us about the business of acting, which is a whole other skill, craft, way of life, dealing with working as an artist. It does take a lot of just tenacity, I think. Yeah. As I was saying, like, I think I mentor entrepreneurs through the iLab and I think one of the things that we work on is like, if you want to build a unicorn and you have the skills and the stomach for it, great. But there's a lot of places in between where you can build a successful business for yourself. And I think that the fact that you've been able to lead a creative life and to sustain yourself, and as you said, to be a significant portion of education that and have found a niche for yourself that works is a testament of that. And I think something that, you know, I think about the world as a bell curve. And if we are optimizing just for the, the only thing that matters being in the top 1%, well, then we're training 99% of the population to be very unhappy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and what's interesting is that like, we don't even know what the 1% of actors are in the union. I think only 10% of us make insurance. And then there's like point one percent or whatever that are famous it takes a lot of people to put on a, a movie it takes a lot of people to to do a tv show and living in new york city actually with so many theater artists i get to experience and know personally what it's like to just you know m my babysitter has been in three broadway shows she's a tony nominee you know and we still need to put food on the table and show up to work every day in whatever way we we can being an artist looks very simple to the naked eye oh i have a gallery show yeah but like what are you doing you know are you like writing copy for some medical company on instagram on the side are you you know are your parents helping or you know there are a lot of different ways to financially support yourself, are you a coach? Are you a teacher? Whatever, to get you to that gallery opening. And rightfully so, there's no shame in that. That's absolutely true. So I finally want to get to the spark that got you on the podcast, which is, we were having this conversation yesterday, and as I said, the spark that got you here to the podcast is the idea their mothers are leader to. And it resonated very deeply with me because, um, you know, I lost my mom this year and I've been doing a lot of thinking about the things that I took from her and from my dad and how they impacted my professional career. And there's a lot of the most important skills that are actually coming for her. Some is, you know, you, you refer to tenacity. My mother was incredibly tenacious and she taught me how to be tenacious. You know, she taught me that even if I didn't have a natural talent for something, it was okay just to apply myself and get to a point that was, you know, good enough. I didn't need to be the best. And that certainly helped me a lot. So you have a podcast that's called Mom Curious and you're, and you're exploring all things that are 
relate to parenthood and specifically to being a mom. So I'd love to hear your point of view on, as you said, you know, moms are some of the most important leaders and give you the floor. Thank you so much. I just have to say, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Yeah. Even in the conversation about my own mother, right? My father didn't want me to be an actress. She took out loans without him knowing. She took a big risk for me, for my soul. That's a mother. So when I first heard your question, it was so clear to me that we know on a cellular level that this is true, that mothers are leaders. Like with our whole being, we know that we lived inside these people, that we wouldn't be on planet Earth without mom. Certainly dad, certainly. But there is a, a depth that is almost beyond words when it comes to the mother-child relationship. I was really excited about talking to you about the mother as leader because, A, it's, it's an underrepresented conversation. The impact a mother can make on a child's life. The planning skills, the organization, the in intuition that she has to listen to or that she has to ignore in order to fit into society, which is a very real dilemma. She's the person hiring care. <laughs> Whether she's working outside or inside the home, that child is always on her mind. And that child is going to be the leader of tomorrow. We're going to live in a world where that child gets to call the shots for us. So I just noticed that because it is a sort of post-language conversation, it's hard to articulate how much mothers impact society. It's also because it's a messy job. I was just at lunch with my kid and I was like, thank God for this place where they're just like, okay, with kids like hanging, like just throwing ketchup and hanging on their parents and being loud. And the work of a mother is a lot at home, secluded from the rest of society, and then also kind of shunned to the sides. Because it's a messy job. It's loud. It's kind of gross. There's a lot of body, <laughs> like, body mess from the beginning. And we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to see it. And even when I pitched myself to you about motherhood, you're like, oh, a working mother. I love that. And I was like, wait, outside of my work, the work I do on being an emotionally regulated human being, being kind, being generous. These are not things that are natural to me. This takes work for me to be like nice to someone who just punched me in the face. We, we celebrate women who are kicking ass and taking names professionally. And I want to be one of those women. I, I, I can't deny it. But the mother who's home, whether she's worked a day in the office or not, is doing a tremendous amount of work that is deeply important to society. That's my two cents.
Yeah, and it's it's an irony, right? We are in a country where oh, family first, family first, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like the the role that is central to the success of the family is you know, and, and whether whether it's a mother or you know, obviously there's very different versions right now of uh, people providing that pivotal role. So we're talking about the mother, there's a physical part of it, but it's general, like the role of the mother as the main caretaker. I'm curious, see what I did there. Yeah. You are talking to a lot of mothers. Yeah, I am. In your Mom Curious podcast. Mm-hmm. Mothers with a lot of different experiences and, and areas of expertise. So are there like two or three big things or takeaways or things that really change your perspective that you've heard that you would like to share with my audience? Yeah. You know, I I think I didn't realize what I was doing at the time, but our mutual friend, Ruby, Ruby Rose Fox, just mirrored it to me that I was destigmatizing or taking away the shame in the experience of being a woman, whether she is a mother or not. And I think what I set out to do was just to give voice to my friend who was freezing her eggs, another friend who's a non-binary mother, another friend who um, is in a a same-sex couple, one who lost her husband, another who had a child on her own, lives with her own parents, someone who had an unmedicated labor, mostly at home, you know, tells us about that experience and on and on it goes. There are a lot of different avenues. And then there are women who come on and say, I got my tubes tied at the age of 30 and I don't want children at all. I don't even want the idea of it. And I think the reason why I set out to hand the mic to all these different corners of womanhood is because we are deeply judged women on every level by the way we look (laughs) by the way we parent or don't parent when we have children how we're raising them people will give unsolicited advice to literally any mom at any time i didn't ask (laughs) you know like you don't know me that's the biggest takeaway I I have. And I guess I had it in my heart when I was making the sort of Rolodex, but it's become very clear to me after interviewing 60 women this past year. Oh my God. My producer and I were like, can we just take a pause and like recognize that like we are up against society constantly judging us, explicitly judging us. It's not even like we have to like read minds explicitly telling us we're doing it wrong no matter if we're doing a b or z all the time that's a big takeaway that's been that's been a big one for me as you think about sort of your career and how that is mixing with your role as a mother what are some of the key lessons that you know you took away from hearing how all these other different mothers parent in their style and how they're mixing their various aspects of their life is there anything that really resonated for you? I've always wanted to do things right. Like I wanted to be, I wanted to be the best and I wanted to be the best mom. It's such a moving target. I realize because the more I, I, I interview people, the more I realize like, Oh, she has full-time care. Oh, she never had a babysitter in her life. Oh, she adopted. Oh, they did surrogacy. Oh, 
oh, we have a lot more options. And those options were created or are available because every single person is so different. And I know that as a mother, right? So I know that when I tend to my children, like their temperaments are different, their needs, their likes, et cetera, are just different. They're, they're made by the same two parents. They live in the same home. I respect that about children. I, I always have. But when I got to sit down with other parents, I realized, oh my God, every single person walking this earth is and always has been very different. Their needs are different. I need that babysitter to be the respectful parent that I want to be. It does not come naturally to me. Some people need to be left the fuck alone <laughs> and not have anyone in their space. And I think the, the name of the game is, what do I need right now? What do I need right now? What do I need right now? When it came to acting, I just always needed to act. Like it wasn't something that I needed to check in with. My, it's still not something I need to check in with myself about. But when I'm tending to children and trying to do the best I can, I don't like to cook. I don't like to clean. I don't like it. There are things that I just don't just don't like about being the leader of my household. And I wake up every day and I do it anyway to the best of my ability. Part of that is tuning into myself on any given day. Gee, what do I really need in order to show up to this gig wholehearted? Because it's different than like, I got, I, I quit, I quit teaching. I don't like it anymore. I can't, I can't quit. But what I can do is really consider my options. What are my options? How do I get relief? How do I get support? How do I stand up for myself in an environment, in a societal environment that doesn't quite value my work as a mother? It almost sounds like or feels like you, you open your eyes to a whole other thing. I'm curious to hear how that translated then back into your work environment. Yeah. It's changed my work in that I realize that I'm, I get to investigate and celebrate the life of women through my songs and through my films and through my acting. That I just thought I was this one trick pony, you know, I can make you laugh and I can make you cry. And that does hold true in the podcasting arena, but I just thought I always did that as a performer. And now I have this whole new avenue where I'm just me. And I actually, and this is weird, because my children, and I have this like sense, you know, like of little Dino, you know, like a child in a mother's arms is so, actually gives so much attention, so much attunement, so much focus. There's a lot of eyes on me all day long. I have not, I'm actually not as hungry for that as I was as a child or as a young adult or in my 20s. Like I have these two little beings who are really looking to me. And in this podcast, I get to say like, well, it's not really about me. Like I'm the facilitator. And I really just get to hang back and bask in the glory of this other person's humanity. That's a beautiful thing and a good point to transition more into the personal question. So other than acting and being a mother, which is your professional world, do you have a personal interest outside of that? And how does that 
dovetail into your professional life. I was thinking about this as I was listening to your other episodes. Like, what am I going to say? I don't do tennis. I don't paint. I don't do pottery. I don't sleep. Um, <laughs> my kids are still like not sleeping. It's something that I want to really do more of is have fun. I receive a lot of joy from my professional life. One of the questions our producer asked us on Mom Curious, like the first episode or maybe the third, was like, what do you do for self-care? And the truth is that that preparing for those interviews were deeply nourishing for me. Like, do I want to move my body more? Yeah. Do I want to drink more water and green juice and put on face masks? Yeah. But like, I really love talking to you. Like, I, I love connecting, and I, I'm trying more and more to do that in a more social environment. But there's also another element that I realize that I enjoy deeply, which is, like, delving into my spiritual life. Like, meditating feels good to me, and I take classes on human development, and, you know, I do all the shadow work about all the unmetabolized disappointments I had as a child so that I can show up wholehearted to my new parent-child dynamic. And I find those things necessary for me, but also really fulfilling. Fabulous. Now, now my favorite question of the podcast, what is the expression, like either a business jargon or a cliche, maybe a cliche from the entertainment world that drives you crazy? From the entertainment world, there's no business like show business. Uh, show business is like every other business. That's one. And what about practice makes perfect? Not true. You can rehearse a play for you know months, years. Workshop a play for years. You'll never feel perfect. You can be doing lames for five years at a time. You practice, practice, practice. It'll never feel perfect because that's not what art is. That's not what life is. That's a great answer. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you get to pick or you can go up, you can say both like, you know, food for the body. Is, it, is there a recipe or a drink that you love that nourishes you? And then food for the soul, piece of art, a book, a song, a piece of music, a movie, TV show, something that also you love and inspires you. My grandmother on my father's side was from Iran. And she would stand at the stove and make these incredible stews and white rice with a crispy bottom. Oh, my God. Have you ever tried it? It's called Tadig. This is crazy. Two episodes ago, one of my guests said he loves cooking and he just learned how to make Tadig. <laughs> it's so good, guys. It is so good. And, you know, I, I just, I love it. And I also love it in, in the context of this conversation because she endowed every single morsel of her food with artistry, with love, with nourishment. I mean, it's been, I don't know, 20 years, maybe, since she passed and I can taste it. And my mother now cooks it. You know, her parents are from Eastern Europe. It's not really like a family food for her, but it was so chock full of culture, of pride, of, I don't know, Persian-ness. And if you, it's funny, you know, like my, my grandparents left Iran in the 30s, 1930s. And then they were these like sexy, fun, my vivacious women 
And I just have a lot of uh, love and hope that that culture is revived and celebrated all over again. Well, that's fabulous. And thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And thank you so much for asking and (laughs) for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. If you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Everything helps. Also, make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Stick around because after the credit, I am going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo. And of course, you heard it mentioned it a few times, but let me remind you to go listen to Daniela's fabulous podcast, Mom Curious. It is on all major platforms, so find it wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Daniela on Instagram. Her handle is at Daniela Rabbani, spelled D-A-N-I-E-L-L-A-R-A-B-B-A-N-I, at Daniela Rabbani. For more links for Daniela, go to the episode page of the podcast website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at AL4EDP with the number four. And on Facebook, you can look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. It was pretty easy to choose a Susan Catania song to close this episode. Here is Borrowed Blue, a song about the relationship between mothers and daughters. Mothers and daughters Cut from the same cloth Promise our hearts till death do we part in front of the same God. We say I love you, then we say I do. Then we spend years saying I'm sorry more than we have to. Is something borrowed? and mothers carry the same scars we question our worth what we deserve we inhabit the same dark we say I love you then what do we do we put ourselves down put ourselves last look at our lives a half empty glass Something borrowed Something blue We've been 
Something borrowed 